Welcome everyone, I'm your host, The Traveling Berean, and that makes these The Berean Dialogues. Today's dialogue is the first of a series of episodes focusing on biblical cosmology. On this episode, I will be interviewing Dr. Jason Lyle. Dr. Lyle is a young earth creationist who believes that both observational science and the Bible teach us that the universe is roughly 6,000 years old and that the earth is round. On our next episode, I will be interviewing Sean Griffin. Sean also believes in a young earth, however, he affirms that the Bible and observational science both demonstrate that the earth is flat. So which is it? Let's talk about it. Dr. Jason Lyle, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Would you just take a moment to share a little bit about yourself and your ministry? Yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm a, a Christian. Of course, that's the most important thing. I've been saved by the Lord Jesus, by His grace. I am also a scientist. In particular, I studied astrophysics at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where I got my uh, master's degree and Ph.D., and after that, I went into full-time Christian apologetics ministry. So what I do is I show people that the Bible is true from the beginning, and particularly in matters of science. Uh, as you know, there are a lot of people who think the Bible can't be trusted because they've been taught that uh, science somehow disproves the Bible in one way or another. And uh, what I do is I show people that uh, the Bible really is true and that when you understand the science, it lines up with Scripture. And I, and I particularly specialize in origins, uh, Genesis, uh, creation, that sort of thing. And uh, a couple years ago, I founded a, a new ministry to do just that. It's called the Biblical Science Institute. And you can check us out on the web, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. Great. Thanks for sharing. Are you ready for some questions? Yeah, let's go for it. Where exactly in the Bible does it teach that the earth is roughly 6,000 years old? Okay, well, you won't find that number, 6,000, in the Bible. And there's an important reason for that. Uh, because if the Bible had included the number, then it would have been wrong a thousand years ago, and it will be wrong a thousand years from now. So instead, uh, God gave us the information by which we could derive that number. In particular, I would say the Bible gives us sufficient information that we can conclude that the amount of time between creation and the incarnation of Christ is about 4,000 years. And everyone agrees that uh, Christ's earthly ministry was about 2,000 years ago. That's where the 6,000 years comes from. And if you're wondering how we get that 4,000-year number, that comes from a number of things. First of all, the fact that God created in six days. Uh, the Bible tells us that not only in Genesis 1, but also in Exodus uh, 20.11, where, where he uses the uh, Hebrew word for days, uh, yamim. And some people think, well, that could be periods of time. No, there's a different Hebrew word that God would have used if he would have meant he made in six periods of time. He could have used olam, for example. But no, the, the Hebrew word yamim in the plural always means ordinary days. It's the same as our work week. Human beings then were made on day six, and then the Bible actually gives uh, ages of many of the patriarchs, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and, -so, and it'll, tell you, it'll tell you the difference in age or how old a person was when they begat the next child, and you can add up those genealogies along with other information, uh, certain decrees that were issued and so on, and that's where you get the 4,000 years. And, and it, we can't get an exact number, but it's not going to be millions. It's certainly not going to be billions. What do you believe to be the most compelling scientific evidence for the universe being 6,000 years old, roughly? Yeah, well, there are several. Uh, I think some of the most compelling evidence uh, it's, uh, is, is mainly limited to the Earth, but that's because we have such easy access to the Earth. We can go and we can pick up rocks here, and that's hard to do on, on these distant worlds out there in space. 
But uh, carbon dating, a lot of people have the impression that carbon dating gives millions of years. It does not. Um, carbon dating is based on the decay of C14. C14 is an unstable version of carbon. Most carbon is C12, and it's stable. But C14 is unstable, meaning it will change into nitrogen, and it does this with a half-life of 5,700 years. So it doesn't take very long in terms of the, the secular age of the universe, allegedly, for carbon to decay back into nitrogen. And yet we find C14 in just about everything that has carbon in it on the Earth, no matter how deep down it's found in, in these rock layers that evolutionists believe to be hundreds of millions of years old. But the fact is there's C14 in, in, in these specimens that have carbon in them. And, and that is just not possible if the world were millions of years old. In fact, if the Earth were even one million years old, you'd not have a single atom of C14 left in anything that's, that's well insulated in the Earth's interior. It would all have decayed. And so the fact that you have C14 in everything, including dinosaur remains, by the way, uh, we can carbon date those. You get thousands of years, not millions or billions. I find that very, very compelling and very hard to explain from a secular perspective. But there's a lot of evidence in space as well. Uh, blue stars, a lot of people don't realize that, that when you see a blue star, it can't be billions of years old because blue stars expend their energy very quickly. They, they have a lot of energy available. They have a lot of fuel, a lot of mass, but they use it up at an incredibly fast rate. And so the hottest, bluest stars can't last more than you know, a million years or something like that. And the fact that we find them everywhere in the universe, uh, to me, suggests that it's much younger than the billions of years. And, and by the way, my secular colleagues, they know blue stars can't last that long. And so they're assuming that, that new blue stars have been created recently somehow. Well, I agree that blue stars were created recently, but I would say by God about 6,000 years ago, along with all the other stars. So, um, yeah, so I, I don't think there's any natural mechanism. I, I'm, I'm very skeptical that natural mechanisms will form a star because uh, gas tends to expand in space. It doesn't want to just collapse in on itself. Doesn't distant starlight provide a compelling argument that the Earth and universe may be older than 6,000 years old? I think for people who don't know much about physics, that seems like a really good argument because we see galaxies that are unbelievably far away, uh, billions of light years away. And people hear that term light year and they think that means time. It's actually a distance. When we say galaxies are billions of light years away, we mean they're very far away. But light is supposed to travel a distance of one light year, which is about six trillion miles, in a time of one year. And so if these galaxies are billions of light years away, it should take, you'd think, light would take billions of years to get from there to here. And we do see these galaxies, so obviously the light has gone from there to here. Doesn't that mean they're billions of years old? Well, that seems compelling if you don't know much about physics. But if you, if you study the physics that Einstein discovered, and I've, written, I've actually written a book on the topic because it's, it's very interesting, the physics, sometimes called relativity. But what, it, what that field of physics tells us is that space and time are a little more complicated than most people think. And in fact, the speed of light in any one direction can't actually be measured. Whenever we measure the speed of light, it's either explicitly or implicitly a round-trip measurement. And essentially, you're bouncing light off a mirror and bringing it back to its starting point, measuring the total time, measuring the total distance, and that gives you an average speed of light and it's quite fast. It's 186,000 miles per second, but that's, a, that's an average speed. The speed of light in one direction can actually be as much as infinity, and it depends on how we choose to synchronize clocks. And I'm sorry, it's kind of hard to explain in a, in a short soundbite like this, but I do have a book on the topic that shows people how uh, God could get the light from those galaxies to Earth in no time at all. 
And the thing is, again, if you know something about physics, this is not contested. This is called the uh, conventionality thesis. Now, not everyone agrees with it, but most people do, including Albert Einstein. He recognized that the speed of light in one direction can be as much as infinity, and that means it takes no time at all for the light for, to get from those galaxies to the Earth if you choose the right, what we call a synchrony convention, which is a way of synchronizing clocks separated over a distance. And I know it sounds complicated, and that's because, well, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it's we do have an answer. That's the point. And this is something that is not, you know, it's not something that was made up by some crazy creationist like myself. This is well established in the uh, the technical literature, even the secular technical literature. Do you believe that the Earth is flat or round? <laughs> I do believe it's round. <laughs> I think there's a lot of compelling evidence for that. You know, the interesting thing, the Bible actually teaches around Earth. It's it's kind of funny. People sometimes critics of the Bible will say, "Oh, you believe in creation in six days? You might you might as well believe in like a flat Earth." And I'm thinking, well, you haven't read your Bible because the Bible indicates that the world is round. Uh, one such passage is in Job chapter 26, verse 10, where it, it poetically describes God inscribing a circle on the on the uh, face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. And I would contend that that only makes sense on a spherical Earth. That's the only place where you can have the boundary between light and darkness, which astronomers call the terminator, because we're, that's where light stops or terminates. That can only be a circle. Uh, the, that light and shadow can only be a circle if the Earth's spherical. That's the only way you can get that on, on water, because water seeks its own level. And so if it's flat, you, if the Earth were flat, you wouldn't have that. You wouldn't have a terminator on a flat Earth not possible. So uh, the Bible's teaching around uh, earth, and of course we think Job was written around 2000 BC. It's the oldest book of the Bible to have been completed. Moses had not yet even written Genesis. And so uh, I, I think that's interesting that the Hebrews have known, or at least those people who, who believed in uh, the, the Old Testament uh, scriptures, they've known that the world was round for a very long time. The secularists at the time thought it was flat, uh, the Babylonians, the ancient Greeks, thought it was flat up until around 500 B.C., and then they kind of finally caught up with the truth that the Bible taught. It was around 500 B.C. that the Pythagoreans uh, began believing that the world was round. Aristotle's usually considered the first to prove that the world's round, but he's somewhere around, uh, you know, he's 300s B.C., something like that. Uh, so we've known that the world is round for a long time. Very easy to prove it scientifically, but I think the uh, I, for a Christian... The fact that you find it in Scripture, that ought to be sufficient. And, and, and I think throughout the Scriptures as well, it's very clear that people, at least God's people, knew that the world was round. Uh, the fact that you have a global flood, for example, mentioned in Genesis 6 through 8, you can't have a global flood without a globe. On a, uh, on a flat earth, the water just runs off the side, and you, there's no way you can flood the high hills unless you put a lip around the edge, in which case that constitutes a hill that's not flooded. But the Bible says all the high hills were flooded. They're covered with water. So... Uh, you know, even as early as Genesis, you find that, that God's people knew about the earth being uh, round. In your opinion, is the belief in flat earth dangerous or harmful to Christianity and or the gospel? I, I think it is. And it's it's not because, um, well, well, first of all, it's it, it, the Bible's wrong. If the earth's flat, then the Bible's wrong because the Bible says it's round. And so that's a problem. But and granted, there are only, I think there are only a few verses that touch on the shape of the earth in Scripture. It's not a, it's not a, that's not a major theme in the Bible. That's not a gospel issue. But the fact that it's so easy to prove scientifically that the world is round, that I think if Christians make the claim that it's flat, it, I think it makes us look rather foolish 
especially if Christians claim, as some of them do, that the Bible teaches a flat earth. Well, it really doesn't. Uh, there's no proper hermeneutic by which you could get that from Scripture. But if people make that claim that the Bible says it's flat, and we, we look out and we see that it's round, we have pictures from space now that confirm that it's round, uh, it, it gives people a reason to write off the Bible. And, and that's the problem that I see with it. It's not that, you know, I'm, nobody, nobody's claiming you have to believe in a round earth to be saved or anything like that. But I do think that when people teach uh, falsely that the Bible is making a claim that it's not claiming, one that's demonstrably false, it gives non-believers a justification for writing off the scripture because there are many scientific ways that we can demonstrate that the earth is round. Uh, I live here in Colorado Springs where we have mountains uh, to the west, and when the sun rises, the sun the sunbeams actually hit the top of the mountains first before I can even see the sun here at the base. And then, and then that beam uh, comes down the mountain, it glides down like a curtain, and by the time it reaches the base, then I can see the sun for the first time. And that only makes sense if the earth is round, because from the tops of the mountains, their horizon is further out due to the curvature of the earth than my, my horizon is here at the base. So the tops of the mountains are illuminated first, and then it goes down to the bottom. That's the, that's, you would not have that on a flat earth. On a flat earth, uh, it would be the opposite. So there's lots of proofs like that, that you, know, you don't have to go to space and take a picture of the earth, which many people have done, but you don't have to do that to prove that the world is round. And so if you're going to believe that, please don't say that the Bible teaches a flat earth, because it really doesn't. If the earth's rotation is what causes the sun to appear to move across the sky, would the Bible be scientifically inaccurate in Joshua 10:13, where it states that it was the sun that stood still? Okay, well, uh, first of all, this issue, a lot of people confuse this, these two issues, but this really is dealing with the issue of does the earth move? Does the earth rotate? And uh, because you could have a spherical earth that theoretically, in, in, hypothetically, you could have a spherical earth that does not rotate where the sun goes around it, and that would be perfectly compatible with Joshua. So I think a lot of times the flat earthers get confused in what, the, what point it is they're trying to make. They're trying to argue for a flat earth and uh, they're using Joshua to argue that the earth doesn't move. But even that, you really can't argue that, that Joshua teaches that the earth is stationary because motion is inherently relative. When I say that something is moving, I mean that its position has changed over time. But in order to talk about a position, I have to have a reference point. If, I, you, know, if you ask me, you know, where, where are you at, Dr. Lyle? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm 30 miles. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Now, if I say I'm 30 miles south of Denver, okay, that makes sense. I've given you a reference point. I've said relative to Denver, here's where I'm at. And likewise, uh, motion has to be compared to something else. If I say something's moving at three miles per hour, you'd have to say, well, relative to what? Now, the reason it doesn't occur to us to ask that question very much is because we all live on the earth, and the earth makes a really convenient reference point. And so when we say a car is moving at 55 miles per hour, we mean relative to the earth. And so I would hope that uh, nobody would pull me over for speeding and say, you were going, uh, you know, 67,000 miles per hour in a 55 <laughs> zone because you're on a planet that's orbiting the sun. No, we understand that means relative to the Earth's surface. We still use that language today. Astronomers like myself use, use that language. We use the Earth as a convenient reference frame, which is why I talk about sunrise and sunset, even though I know very well that in a Newtonian sense, it's the Earth that's rotating that brings the sun into view. It's convenient to use the earth as a reference frame, and the Bible does that as well. So it's perfectly accurate to talk about sunrise and sunsets, perfectly accurate to talk about the sun moving across the sky, 
And it's perfectly accurate to, to talk about it in terms of the reverse. From the sun's perspective, the earth rotates and so on. And the interesting thing is in Joshua, it mentions it a couple times about the sun standing still, but it says in the midst of the sky. And so it's actually giving the reference frame. The reference frame is the sky of the earth, which is relative to the earth's horizon. And so uh, the Bible is giving you the, the reference frame there. So there's no excuse for, for thinking that that teaches some kind of absolute stationarity of the earth, whatever that would even mean. Uh, it just means that relative to the relative to the surface of the earth, the sun uh, stopped moving. And so from, from our modern perspective, we might say, well, the, the earth stopped rotating at that point. God stopped the rotation of the earth uh, temporarily uh, for that day so that they could battle and so on. How do you personally interpret Matthew twenty four twenty nine and Revelation six thirteen when it speaks of the stars falling from heaven and the stars falling to the earth? Yeah, and so, some people suggest, well, that, does that mean that um, you know that the stars actually are really tiny little things, and the astronomers are lying to us because those stars can apparently fall? Uh, well, no. Um, when we t when we look at these passages, both of these are prophetic passages. They're referring to a time in Christ's, at least from the, from Christ's uh, earthly ministry, from his perspective, a time in his future. It's describing a future event from his perspective, and that same kind of language is used in the Old Testament. Generally, when, when the scriptures are making a prophetic statement about something that's going to happen in the future, they usually do so in non-literal language. They use figures of speech, they use uh, metaphors and similes, and uh, in particular, the, st the stars of heaven, the sun and the moon, uh, well, some passages just say the stars won't give their light, others they'll fall to the earth, some say the moon turns dark, others say it turns red. It would be contradictory if you were to take it in a wooden literal fashion, uh, but the Jews would not have taken it that way because they were familiar with the Old Testament. They understood how these figures of speech that popped up in prophetic literature. Uh, so sometimes that confuses people because they say, well, shouldn't we take the Bible literally? Well, those sections that are historical narrative, yes. When the Bible's recording history, it does so from a primarily literal standpoint. That's the way you read a history book. You pick up a history book, it says George Washington rode his horse into battle. You don't, you know, that's what it means. You don't pick out the symbolic meaning. What does it mean, George Washington? But um, when you when you read uh, poetic sections of the Bible and, and prophetic sections of the Bible, and they contain these figures of speech, we need to research the text a little bit and find out what these texts mean. In fact, in the Old Testament, that imagery of the, the sun not giving its light, the, the stars falling to earth, was often taken... As a, as, as a symbol for the collapse of a nation or the collapse of a government. In the Bible, because initially stars were created to uh, rule over the day and the night, the sun, the moon, and stars were created to rule over the day and over the night, to govern the day and the night, they became a symbol very quickly of government, of nations, of the nation of Israel, for, for one. Think about how many nations today on their flag have either the sun, moon, or stars, including our own flag. Uh, they represent government. And if you think about it, the first time that the sun, moon, and stars are used symbolically, they represented the nation of Israel. Remember uh, Joseph's dream. He, dream. he dreamt that the sun, moon, and stars were bowing down before him. And so these, the, what, I, what I would suggest then is that Matthew 24, 29, without getting into specifics of eschatology, but I would suggest these passages are referring to the collapse of, uh, of nations or a nation. What exactly, in your opinion, is the firmament that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, verse 7? Okay, well, you know, the Bible talks about uh, God making the heavens and the earth, and then he, he then on day two, well, day one, he makes light, separates the light from the darkness, so you have a rotating earth there. 
On day two, he separates waters above from waters below. And so apparently the earth did not have the separation of waters that we have today. Apparently it, um, apparently it uh, was a, a mix, kind of an amalgamation of all these different waters. And God separated those waters, the waters above from waters below. And the separation itself is what we're, is in Hebrew text, it's referred to as the, the rakia. And uh, in, in some translations, it's been translated firmament. That's actually not a very good translation of that word. Firmament comes from the Latin Vulgate uh, translation. Some people think that means a hard dome. No, it really doesn't. The Hebrew word rakia probably means stretched out thinness. It's something that's very thin and has been stretched out. It apparently represents the separation of the waters, at least on day two. And then you'll notice what happens at the end there. After God makes this expanse, this rakia, he calls the expanse heaven or sky. And so that gives us a clue as to what it is. Basically, the rakia is the sky. And a lot of people want to make a lot more of it than that. They want to take it to be, well, it's just the atmosphere of the sky. Well, that could mean that in certain contexts. Or it's just outer space. Because our modern English word for sky can refer to either the, you know, the atmosphere where birds fly, or it can refer to outer space where the stars and sun and moon are. And so which, which does it mean in Hebrew? Well, either one or both, depending on context. Uh, the Bible just basically refers to it as the sky. So that's what you should, when you read about the firmament or the expanse, it's referring to the sky. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14 through 17, it states that God placed the sun, moon, and stars in the firmament of heaven. Does this mean that the sun, moon, and stars are inside the earth's atmosphere? Well, no, because again, the well, the rachia can, in some contexts, I think, refer to earth's atmosphere. It probably does on day two. But by the end of day two, God he gives a name to the rachia. He calls it shamayim, which is uh, heaven or sky. So God's calling the expanse sky. And uh, therefore, it can, it can refer either to the atmosphere or to outer space. I don't think you can conclude from the Hebrew text uh, that it necessarily means one or the other. And so, now the interesting thing about Genesis 1, 14 through 17 is that God places the sun, moon, and stars in the rakia of the shamayim. And so, uh, and that, that could mean that, um, that, because the word is effectively doubled, because I, I would argue that rakia and shamayim are synonyms. They basically mean the same thing. They both mean heaven or the sky. And so the fact that God is putting the stars in the sky of the skies may may suggest that they're in the outer chamber, that they're in the more distant sky, not the near chamber, the atmosphere where birds fly. But even that I wouldn't be dogmatic about. I, I would just say that the only thing we know for sure is that God placed the sun, moon, and stars in the sky, and that's certainly where they are. Um, actually, I just had a friend of mine who is somewhat of a follower of your YouTube uh, channel and the videos that you put out, and he, he, want, he wanted me to ask if there is any scientific evidence for the Oort cloud? That's a good question. Uh, I would say no. There's no. There's absolutely no scientific evidence for the Oort cloud. And just just by way of uh, just just to give a little clarification, a little background on the issue, the the Oort cloud was invented because the solar system looks young. It looks thousands of years old, and the secularists can't deal with that really. Uh, one of the evidences that our solar system is not billions of years old, but much younger, thousands of years old, is comets. Comets orbit the sun in elliptical paths. Comets are made up of ice and dirt. 
and their elliptical path takes them very far away from the sun where the ice and dirt remain frozen, but when they come close to the sun, the, the heat from the sun vaporizes some of that ice, and that's actually what forms a comet's tail. So you might have seen these wonderful pictures of comets with these long tails. That's material being blasted away from these, the center, the nucleus of the comet. And we can measure the rate at which that material is being depleted. We know the amount of material that's present. Uh, the, the nucleus of comets usually just a few miles across. They're not that big in terms of the actual material. And we can do the calculation, and we find that comets can't last more than, a, a typical comet can last no more than 100,000 years maximum, and yet we find them everywhere. We find them in our solar system. There's some evidence now of comets in other solar systems too, which is kind of interesting. Uh, not direct evidence, but indirect. And so my secular colleagues have suggested that there must be basically a comet generator to make new comets, because they believe the solar system's 4.5 billion years old, in which case there should be no comets left. And so they've suggested there's this big reservoir of potential comets out beyond Neptune, beyond the farthest planets where we can't detect them, a big sphere of potential, orbiting potential comets. And every now and then the idea is one is kicked into the inner solar system, becomes a brand new comet. So as the old comets are depleted, new ones replace them. And it's a neat idea, but there's absolutely no observational evidence for an Oort cloud. It's just not there. In your opinion, where did this sudden resurgence of interest and belief in flat Earth come from? Uh, the I think the internet had a lot to do with it. In the past, if you wanted to, I mean, you're, people have always been welcome to challenge the scientific ideas of the day. Well, maybe not always welcome, but in principle, in principle, scientists encourage scientific ideas to be challenged. And you can do that. And you can come up with experiments to demonstrate your new idea, to test, to, you know, an experiment that will distinguish between the existing idea and the new one. And you can publish a paper on it, and it'll go into the, um, the technical literature where it will be vetted, and there will be other scientists that will look at it, and they'll check, and they'll say, well, yeah, you know, this, this makes sense. It's worthy of publication. Neat idea. I don't see any flaws. Or they'll say, no, wait a minute. You made a horrible mistake here. You made a math mistake there, and so on. So uh, the peer-reviewed technical literature basically weeded out really bad ideas, ideas that do not stand up to scientific scrutiny, ideas that can be easily disproved by experiment. And, and even with books, in, in the past, to publish a book, you had to find a publisher, and if he's a competent publisher, he'll want his, his book to be, you'll want the book to be accurate, so he's going to check to make sure that you know what you're talking about. Now, the internet changes everything. The, the good thing about the internet is it makes it possible for those of us who have studied science under theology to, to get good ideas out there to the public. That's great. The bad thing about the internet is anybody can publish any opinion whatsoever, even if it has absolutely no scientific support, even if it's very easy to disprove. And so, uh, let's face it, if, if most people who have heard about, who have heard an argument for a flat earth, heard it on the internet. I guarantee you they did not get it from a, a, a scientifically peer-reviewed uh, literature. It's, it's, you're not find it. And there are very few books even that would defend the idea. Uh, but most people have heard it on the internet, and they've bought it hook, line, and sinker. And, we, and I would argue, in addition to that, we have a huge discernment problem today, not only within the church, but without as well. Uh, people need to be they need to engage their, their brain a little more often and learn a little bit about logic and, and make sure that the arguments that they're hearing are sound. But I would say that anybody who knows anything about geometry and astronomy, uh, there's no way you could believe in a flat Earth. You, it's impossible to believe in a flat Earth and understand geometry because we can demonstrate by the angles that the stars make and so on that the Earth's surface is curved, and we can even calculate the size of it. 
And in fact, I've, uh, I'm just in the process of writing an article. I just published an article on the website that touches on this topic of the uh, roundness of the earth. And then I'm going to have a follow-up article. Maybe by the time this, this airs, it'll already be up. But uh, it'll be on, the, uh, on how, how you can demonstrate, how you can prove mathematically that the world is round. It's very easy. It's just most people uh, read these things on the Internet, and they just believe them without any kind of discernment whatsoever. I think that's the big issue. Is there any chance at all that you could possibly be wrong about the Earth being round rather than flat? Well, the cool thing is, uh, this particular truth claim is in the Bible. So, no, there's no, there's no possibility that I'm wrong. The Bible does teach that the Earth's round, in, in, again, in Job 26.10 and other places, but I think that one is very explicit. So because it's directly in, in Scripture, there's absolutely no chance that I'm wrong about that. And, and frankly, we can, it, again, we can, we can demonstrate it scientifically today. Uh, when people come up with ideas about the past, uh, those are rarely uh, scientifically, almost never scientifically testable. But when we talk about the shape of the earth, that's something we can test today in the present. It's something the Bible explicitly teaches. And so uh, for this particular thing, I'd say, no, we, we can't be wrong. There, there are other things I can be wrong about, but not this one because it's in Scripture. Dr. Lyle, I want to thank you again for coming on to the show and answering our questions. I would want you to know that we'll be continuing to pray that God continues to use you and your ministry to lead others to His Son, Jesus Christ. I hope you have a blessed evening. You too. Thank you, everyone, for listening in to today's podcast. I hope that today's show was both interesting and informative. If you liked the show, don't forget to give us a thumbs up. And if you are interested in hearing more, simply click the subscribe button. I encourage everyone to share your thoughts in the comments section. And if you are interested in being a guest on the show, you can email me at thebereandialogues at gmail.com. Or if you'd like us to do an episode on a specific topic that we haven't covered yet, simply email us at the same address. Again, that is thebereandialogues at gmail.com. Until next time, remember, search the scriptures daily.